Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, the new chair of the Michigan Legislative Black Caucus, Senator Erica Geis, shares her priorities for 2023, and Scott Greenlee makes his case for Michigan Republican Party chair. Also, the MERS team talks about a looming state fiscal problem, while also updating its list of potential U.S. Senate candidates. Now, here's MERS News Editor Kyle Malin, along with MERS John Rurink and Andrew Miniger. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. A looming fiscal problem is forming over state government. Democrats are making cutting taxes on retirees its top legislative priority for 2023. They're calling it a retirement tax repeal. It's a nifty buzzword for allowing retirement income to be deducted from the state income tax. It's a politically popular idea, but it's going to cost as much as $1 billion to state revenue based on one source I talked to. This version of Senate Bill 1 and House Bill 4001 that I saw allows pension and other pieces of retirement income from defined contribution plans to be written off on a retiree's income tax return. Now, that in itself may not be a significant issue with the state sitting on a $9 billion surplus. But, John Rurink, we had a 2015 road funding package on the books that mandates that starting in 2023, this year, the state's income tax must roll back if revenues are higher than they were in 2021, which of course was a COVID year. The fiscal agencies are projecting that Michigan's income tax could drop from 4.25% to 4.05% based on its calculations. Now that's not final, we won't know that for a few months yet, but that could cost the state another $600 million in perpetuity with no mechanism outside of passing a new law to put it back to 4.25%. Two things going on simultaneously, John, and both of them with significant budget repercussions. And what's amazing is uh, that these calculations are being are being made and, and the future of our uh, income tax structure is being determined based on an artificially high uh, revenue intake that is brought about almost purely and solely by COVID money coursing through the economic system of the state of Michigan. So this is year one of this income tax trigger, but this isn't the only year Michigan will be dealing with this. Like I said, starting this year, Michigan's income tax automatically goes down if state revenues, when adjusted for inflation, are higher than they were in 2021. That's a COVID year with limited economic activity. Andrew, Michigan could be dealing with this income tax rollback um, for several years until this is adjusted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this year does seem like it is a, a possibility to be triggered. So here's the question, guys. Do the Democrats, now that they're in control, do they do anything about the trigger? Knowing that this is going to cause them heartburn during this whole four years. So how interesting is this? Arlen Mikoff back in 2015 with Kevin Cotter concocted an automatic income tax rollback that impacts directly the first Democratic House and Senate that we've had in 40 years. So they're the first ones who have to deal with this. Yep. And if you cut it, if you would take that out of statute and you, you eliminate that rollback, is that a tax hike? I, I think the Republicans would 19... say you're raising taxes, right? Yeah. yeah remember, That's how they're going to yeah, frame it. Yeah. Remember in 1983... 
when uh, Jim Blanchard wanted a temporary income tax hike. He had two members of the Michigan Senate recalled that flipped the Senate to the Republicans, and they held it for 40 years. That's the last time we had a Democratic. That's the last time we had a Democratic Senate. And that was scuttled because they increased taxes. And, but, the and income it was only tax. A it was a temporary income tax increase. Now, can you make the argument in today's, in today's rhetorical marketplace that by fixing this situation, <clears throat> you're actually raising taxes? And I mentioned the year 2021 as being the base year, as being significant, Andrew, because that's the year the federal government gave Michigan and other states a bunch of COVID relief money that eventually has been spent and uh, has been pumped into the economy. It's taken some time, but it's eventually being spent. It's being spent now. And so now, of course, all this revenue is coming into the market and people are starting to spend it here in 2022, 2023. Right, Sean? And they held on to it and they're starting to spend it and it's accelerating artificially uh, the income tax. Well, even even individuals have had more yeah. in their more in their savings yeah. account than, you know, ever before because of that money. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, that's not only a trigger for that. It's they, a trigger for they, they weren't spending during COVID. Now they're suddenly spending. That's driving up income taxes and revenues. And it's it's going to be, it's not a permanent. This is not permanent. This is, I'm telling you, this is not permanent. Well, and, and not just that, but, uh, you know, you, you have these historic spending sprees right now going on because right. of this. Because of this, yeah. And, you know, it's inflating all of yeah. the, all of it's, the. It's like it's like tax. it's like you go to a casino and you play blackjack and you win $2500 and you're feeling really good and you and you make a family decision on your on your on your revenue stream that's permanent, right? Well, all you want was maybe an extra paycheck. But you're going you're going to make a permanent change to the money amount of money coming to your household cuz you feel good. That's well, crazy. and not only that, so we've got the income tax, and now we have this change that the governor and the Democrats have made their top priority in the legislature, which is to roll back the uh, amount that a retiree can exempt on income taxes, their income that they get from retirement income, which by and large are pensions. But if you look at the actual act, it does to some degree impact other retirement sources like an IRA or a 401k, not to the same degree, not like 100%, but portions of it. So this does impact other retirement income, and that in itself could also impact the general fund and impact state what, what the state is able to pay and what, it, what they're able to afford um, to the tune of another upwards to a billion dollars or, or somewhere in that area based on the information I've received. That's, that's a lot of money that's just going to be taken out of the system mm -hmm. um, what would you compare? It sounds like, what, what did you say, John? A cotton? You're making fiscal decisions when you're on a, a, a cotton candy sugar high. Yeah. How about that? It's the Democrats that are cutting taxes well, to a degree that it's going to well, impact revenues down the line. And I don't think, yeah, and I, and I don't think they're going to want to let this this permanent income tax cut rollback go through because, like we said, they're going to be dealing with it in out years. What they're talking about with so many tax changes on the table, they just need to wrap it up in one big package. And with lots of goodies and bells and whistles in it, and you and you eliminate that two tenths of a of a percent rollback, so you don't have to deal with it. Do you know? Could they play this off though? Also, as we're cutting we're cutting the retirement tax. Yeah. So why we're, we're, you know we're, let's let's put the income tax back where yep, it should we're be. We're passing the earned income tax credit. We're 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 dealing with the pension tax, and we're going to wrap it all up in one major package. 
oh, and by the way, we're not going to put this in our rhetoric, but that, that rollback, that's not there anymore because we took it out of the statute. Right. Part so, of the package. Well, remember when the this whole trigger was put in place was because of the road package. And they were raising taxes. The Republicans were raising the gas tax. But in order to try and deflect from the fact that they raised the gas tax, they created this income tax rollback so it didn't seem as bad. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole reason it's out there. But then, as we suspected at that time, somebody else is going to have to pay for it. And this is the year that we're going to have to pay for it, year 2023. No, I, th I think the Democrats need to do a little bright, shiny object over here. Look what we're giving you. Look what we're giving you. <laughs> And forget about what we're taking away. So if the Democrats want to do something with this trigger, all the Democrats are going to have to vote for this in order for it to go through. This is one of those votes that you're not going to get a single Republican vote for. So all de all 20 Senate D's, all 56 House D's are going to have to take the plunge on this if they go forward with it in order for it to go into effect. That's politically dangerous. Welcome to governance. All right, let's change the conversation here. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow is not going to be running for re-election in 2024. Speculation, of course, is rampant right now as to who will run to replace her. And uh, we put out a list in MERS uh, a few days ago where we ranked who we thought was most likely to be her replacement. On the Democratic side, we'll start here. Do we have consensus that Alyssa Slotkin should still be number one for most likely to get into this race? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I I'm on my list is still Slotkin and McMorrow. I'm not sure on that one, Andrew. I'm thinking that Senator Mallory McMorrow is taking a look to see what Haley Stevens does, and if she ends up running for that U.S. Senate seat, she would run for Haley Stevens' congressional seat. What do you think of that, John? We'll see I think instead. I think you're I think you're right on that. I think it's hard to go from the state Senate to the U.S. Senate. Even if she does have a fundraising base that is national. Even if she is, yeah. And I don't know if she runs against Slotkin. That's the other question I have. I'm not quite sure that. No, because, I mean, look, at Alyssa Slotkin's already developed the, the ability to be a, a ferocious fundraiser. She's already got the connections to national interest groups that she could foist up a, a U.S. Senate race in pretty short order. Even though Mallory's raised a lot of money, I don't know that if you're if you're a institutional national player in picking Democrats to run for these offices if, if you would pick a McMorrow over a Stockton. I just don't think you would. You could also run uh, McMorrow in the primary against Slotkin, knowing Slotkin's going to win. But you put McMorrow to the left of her and make her seem more centrist for the general. So kind of a coordinated effort there to make Alyssa Slotkin look better in a general election. That's an interesting theory. I just wonder how many candidates are going to end up getting into this field. Is there room enough for more than two candidates? Is there enough fundraising potential for a kind of centrist type candidate and a more progressive candidate, kind of like Haley Stevens versus Andy Levin? Could you have more who would be realistic candidates or could we get more? Uh, could we get somebody who could even be kind of to the further left? I'm quite sure who that would be yet, but, you know, like a, a Rashida Tlaib type, not that she would be interested in that, but somebody in that same kind of conversation where, you know, they they would have to get some funding from somewhere. Yeah, they, could, you know, they could definitely run. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that would be the best, most electable general election campaign, you know, candidate would be a, that, somebody that's progressive. This is still a moderate state. You oh. need somebody in the middle. Which is why Alyssa Slotkin is, is such a strong candidate. Of the two, 
Andrew, who do you think is most likely to run, Garland Gilchrist or Joslyn Benson? I would say Gilchrist. I uh, out of out of those two, given the given those two, I I do I do think that that he would be more likely to run than Benson because Benson seems to have her eye maybe on something something else. Uh, I, I mean, I've I've heard a lot of people say about uh, about her running for governor after Whitmer steps down. What do you think, John? Gilcrest or Benson most likely to run for this? I am still leaning towards Benson. I I, might, I was started at Gilcrest, but I think I may be going more toward Benson as well. I think, and, and she's also got a stronger position to run. Lieutenant governors in this state are not particularly well known, and they're not powerful. And they're not powerful. I mean, I know they were on. The, I know he was on, appeared on the ticket, and I know he's got. You know, he is the number two, and if something happens to the governor, he's going to be the top guy. Um, but they're just. I mean, ask Brian Kelly how hard it was to run for governor as an LG. It's not easy. Ask Dick Poshmas how hard it was to run as governor as an LG, and, and at least he got you know won the primary. So the name ID isn't isn't there for Gilcrest, is what you're saying? No, I don't think so. Not yet. I think he's got a ways to go yet. On top of that, too, I, I gave some consideration about what he said, what he's doing next. Gilcrest said he's got to talk it over with his wife. That's code for we got three young kids at home. Yep, that makes it hard. Well, Benson's got young kids too, doesn't she? Yeah, she's got one. Yep, she does. She does have one as well. It's, um, it's not easy. I mean, that's a lot of shuttling back and forth. And, you know, do you take the kids to Washington, D.C., or do you leave them here? So do you not see them yeah. three, four days a week? <clears throat> I mean, right. that's hard. Well, it, given just the choice between the two of them, that's who I would pick. But right. I don't think either of them is really going to. You don't think either of them no. really will? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't think either of them will be. It's a long ways off. Yeah. So, Alyssa Slotkin it might be the the big fame in the, in, the, in the game by the time it comes around. Republican side. Candace Miller yeah. is no longer our number one because she said she's not doing it. Who becomes the number one on the Republican side? Oh, Ruth Johnson. See, I thought Ruth Johnson was just putting her name out there to scare Benson out of the race. Why would that scare Benson out of the race? Well, did you hear this interview she did with Michael Patrick Shields? I did You, you got to hear this thing. All right, so he she was on the air for seven minutes, Ruth Johnson was. She spent five of it going after Benson, literally five minutes, going just straight out, uninterrupted on Benson, just unloading. So that's, that's why I, I don't know if that's serious or not. I'm also not convinced about Ruth Johnson money raising. She's just never struck me as a particularly strong fundraiser. Uh, I know she's run statewide before. I know she's got name ID. I just don't know about the fundraising <clears throat> aspect of it and whether she's got kind of a national pipeline to to work on that. I don't know, but I, she's got she ran statewide. She's got a statewide name still. <clears throat> you know, I think it would be good for the Republicans to have a strong female candidate to go up against. Probably Alyssa Slotkin. We're going to have on this podcast a little later Scott Greenley, who was. Um, the general consultant for Lisa McLean, the congresswoman now out of Macomb County. I'm wondering about Lisa McLean. I think that, I, you know, she's got now a national network being a member of Congress. Plus, she uh, also uh, was an executive with a hands group, does have some personal some resources, resources herself. Yeah. I'm wondering if she might not be in a better position. Has anybody run. talked to Fred Upton? I mean, I, he kind of got pushed out of the race. You're right. That's right. So I, I mean, is he truly done with politics? Like, is is that and out of anybody in the Republican Party, like, 
he's Boy, he, he was the one that that the the rest of the Republican Party was like, he, he, no, he, he could probably win statewide. It's You'd possible. You have, to have the right, right mix of candidates. So almost have, if you could, if you had a, it'd be better for him if you had a couple of of really strong hard conservatives to split their vote. And maybe if he got Kate and Justin Verlander to campaign with him. Oh, there yeah. you go. That, that would be helpful. Oh, yeah. Even if Verlander's... Mr. Problem Solver. <laughs> Michigan's calling. <laughs> uh, John James, yes or no, uh, Andrew? Uh, I say no, maybe next one. Yeah, I think he thinks about it. I think he needs to... I think he wants to hold on to that. He should want to hold on to that seat. I, I, you know, I mean, he got a lot of attention when he did that nominating speech for... Kevin McCarthy and what was it the 12th 13th 14th or I don't remember what round it was yeah it got a lot of attention um and, and I you know I, I think if I were him I'd be a little wary about giving up that microphone right away because there's no guarantee he, he I mean he already lost two U.S. Senate races I'm not saying he didn't make it competitive and that he wouldn't make it competitive but I, I you know that's tough Peter Meyer yes or no yes uh, I'm I'm yes on Peter Meyer I think he would do well in general um, I know the Republican Party doesn't like him, but I think he would he would have a shot. And again, I think it'd be similar to an Upton situation where he'd have to make it through the primary, and it'd be an ugly primary. Yeah, I think he wants to do something, but is it that or is it governor? I'm wondering if he doesn't want to just run for that congressional seat again. What happens if it's one-on-one with him against um, Hillary Scolton? You know, he beat her before, and... If he and I know the district's different this time, and he'd have to run in Muskegon, but he wasn't afraid of that at all. When he was on this podcast, he said he had grew up in Muskegon, he had no problems running Muskegon. So I don't know. I I, I just wonder if that may be where his attention is. But obviously, he's got to think about this. Well, and I don't think I when he was on a podcast, there wasn't an open Senate seat. Either. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I just think that district for him, for any Republican, I think that district's be really hard to presidential year. That's a different ballgame. All right. So I'm going to move Lisa McLean up the list. Peter Meyer will keep on the list. Uh, John James uh, will keep him lower on the list. And just for you, John, I'll, I'll put on Ruth Johnson. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. There you go. I, I see what you're saying. She's, she does just has to find a revenue stream. And uh, then I think we can move her up quite a bit. So see what happens. All right. With that, let's move on to the next section of our podcast. Now over Zoom is Senator Erica Geis, Democrat out of Taylor. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Good to be here. So you are the senator now for District 1. That's got to seem kind of weird, doesn't it? Your district's now District 1? Yeah, it, it is. It's it's um, completely random. I was thinking about the fact that the number, the district numbers I've represented, I was District 12 in the House and then District 6 last term in the Senate and now District 1. Um, so, so it's like numeric. you're going down. <laughs> yeah. Almost an equal numbers there. Well, first of all, congratulations on um, your election to be the chair of the Michigan Legislative Black Caucus. Uh, tell our listeners how that came about. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to be able to follow in the footsteps of our former chair, uh, Senator Marshall, Marshall Bullock. You know, we worked really well together. Last term, I was executive vice chair. 
and in speaking with members and assembling a, a team, because I really believe in a team approach. We have a great executive board. Um, Senator uh, Representative Amos O'Neill will be the executive, well, is the executive vice chair. Senator Sarah Anthony is the first vice chair. Representative Brenda Carter is the second vice chair. Our secretary will continue to be Rep. Felicia Brayback. Our treasurer will be Representative Stephanie Young. Elena Scott will be our historian. Um, our chaplain will be Representative Cynthia Neely. And our sergeant at arms and parliamentarian will be um, Representative Donovan McKinney. Um, and it's a, a group that represents different parts of our state. Um, so when we think about the, the broader uh, Black diaspora across the state, um, I think that we'll be able to bring together our experiences serving urban, suburban, and rural districts um, of, of members of the Black community and being able to work to advance the issues rooted in equity and justice that are important uh, to Black Michiganders. I've seen in years past that there have been uh, folks of other ethnicities that have been in the Legislative Black Caucus. Is that still going to continue? Um, you know, we do have some members who who um, have have renewed their membership uh, for the Michigan Legislative Black Caucus. Um, and, you know, we strive to amplify the, the voices of all Michiganders of color. Um, However, with, as I'm sure you're aware, um, our, our falling numbers of Black representation in the legislature, um, it's really important that we're, we're making sure that we are a good sound voice for, um, for Black Michiganders. Um, and when we are addressing the issues that are central and important to our communities, um, you know, we also bring along um, the issues that are central and important to other communities of color. Tell me what your top issue is that you'd like to see done in this role as chair of the Legislative Black Caucus. Oh, wow. Um, well, first, um, I'm sure you're aware, um, in previous years, we have established policy pillars. Um, and the Together, um, MLBC will be looking at what our policy pillars are this term. Um, and I expect that all of them will be rooted in equity and justice, whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking about healthcare, um, whether we're talking of, um, about um, civil rights. Um, and these are all spaces when, uh, that, um, you know, as the chair of the Michigan Legislative Black Caucus, I don't want to make a unilateral uh, decision about what our top priority will be, because that's something that's going to come from the group and from the group together, um, because our work is together. And um, as the African proverb goes, if you want to go far, you go together. And I envision us as going far. And in order to do, to do that, we do that in a unified manner. Well, I can imagine that your legislation will go a lot further this year than it did in years past, considering the Democrats are in majority in both the House and the Senate. Uh, that that in itself has got to be pretty exciting. Yes, it is very exciting. As someone who served um, most of my time in the legislature in the minority, 
Um, I'm also cognizant of the fact that we have slim majorities in both chambers. Um, so it will require uh, working together. Um, it will require, in some cases, compromise, um, but hopefully without compromising our values um, and the, the core tenets that Michiganders are expecting us to be operating within a framework of um, as we advance issues that uplift um, Michiganders um, socially, economically, um, and and so I'm very excited about the possibilities um, and at the policy possibilities of doing it in in a way that's very thoughtful and detail oriented um, and sensible. So I'm taking a look here at uh, priorities uh, for your caucus and for you personally. I see you were able to introduce Senate Bill 2, which repeals the often referenced 1931 abortion ban in the state of Michigan. Now, since um, uh, Proposal 3 has passed, uh, I, I wouldn't think the 1931 law would be of value anyway. Uh, why, why the initiative and, and the legislation to repeal it? So this is a, a bill I've introduced in prior terms um, that has gone nowhere. Um, and the I think as we saw with what happened with the Dobbs decision and Roe v. Wade, um, that when you have legislation that, or, or laws rather, because um, at that point it's a law, um, that is rendered mute um, by a Supreme Court decision or, or whether it's statewide Supreme Court or um, federal for Supreme Court, um, that should there be a change in that, that unless that law is repealed, it it has the potential, as in our case and in a couple of other states, to end up then being um, returned to to being able to be being enforced. Um, so we still, despite having Prop 3 um, be very successful at the ballot in, in November, um, we still need to eliminate the, um, the laws that, that really make reproductive justice and reproductive health care um, difficult for many Michiganders. And that's one of many um, that need to be uh, repealed or addressed or um, or altered um, in a way that matches uh, the the prescriptions that are in the uh, language of Prop Three. Uh, changing subjects here, as I was sitting in the Senate chambers on Thursday, it, it took me a little bit to get used to the new arrangement there where the Democrats were sitting on the right side of the rostrum and the Republicans were sitting on the left side of the rostrum. Uh, but what was uh, that's what struck me. What struck you on these first few days of session being in the majority? Um, yeah, the spatial orientation is, is definitely... It's only been two days. Uh, it's 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 uh, takes a bit of getting used to. Um, I feel like there is, um, at least on our side of the aisle, uh, a renewed sense of of what can be done, of of the possibilities, um, and the the atmosphere feels 
different uh, in the chamber. And um, I'm sure that will change as we get into our committee work and our, um, you know, deeply engaged in the process and in floor debates and um, and the the sausage making, if you will, of, of getting legislation um, across the the finish line. Um, but it it really feels like it's it's a it's a space where um, it feels very positive in in the chamber. Well, and and being in the majority obviously helps in that. But knowing, I'm sure that you have the support of the caucus members uh, who are in the majority, and you can actually make laws now, uh, is probably also pretty helpful. What what kind of uh, what kind of collaboration are you expecting from Republicans, particularly on your transportation committee, which you are now going to be the chair of? I'm really looking forward to um, to chairing transportation um, and. The, the members on it, I think, are um, are going to be willing to, to really look at how we address transportation and infrastructure across the state um, on both peninsulas um, and really making um, the work that we do on the committee meaningful um, to all sort, all forms of, of of transportation. So, of course, we're going to have to sink our teeth into um, how we look at road funding um, when it comes to changing the, you know, from internal combustion engines to more electric vehicles. Um, you know, that means that there'll be fewer dollars coming from gas taxes as more people are buying um, and utilizing uh, EVs. Um, so those are conversations that we're going to have to have with the department and with the the governor's office. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll we'll see those bills coming from members. Um, regional transit is something that I know that is important to me, but that is I know is important to many of our communities. Um, not everybody drives. <laughs> not everybody is able to um, to afford to drive, even if they have a license and have the skills to drive. Um, and there are people who really want alternate methods of transportation. Um, and of course, you know, transportation infrastructure includes what's under the ground that we don't see. So um, things like our, our pipes and making sure our municipal, local municipal governments have the, the access to be able to provide for, you know, adequate infrastructure, infrastructure for their communities. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, we are the Great Lakes state and there are road uh, waterways that are also important um, when it comes to um, transportation and infrastructure as well. Uh, you had mentioned electric vehicles. Do you see us moving to some kind of mileage tax at some point as opposed to the standard gas tax? Um, I think that's... A potential. Uh, I think we have need a different portfolio, a diversified portfolio when it comes to figuring out road funding. Um, and those are conversations that um, we'll have to have with the administration and with the department. Um, and then the uh, last thing I wanted to touch on, I wanted to ask about your daughter. I saw your social media posts uh, that she um, uh, overcame cancer. Yes, she's doing she's doing much better. Um, we did have a little setback after her 
final cancer treatment. Um, that is, uh, it's it's expected uh, with uh, juvenile cancer patients um, to have something called febrile neutropenia um, as their blood counts lower. Um, but she is um, on the mend from that and was actually able to be at swearing in on, on Wednesday. Um, so that's something that's exciting for our family as we help her navigate through the recovery process um, of um, after a very long treatment period. Um, and I will say that something that I have um, been very vocal about since um, since becoming elected is, you know, the need for paid family leave. Um, and when you are in the middle of a significant health crisis, um, you really, you, you really, it amplifies that need. And when you are in a space with other families who are going through something similar and coming from different backgrounds and different situations, um, you know, it's very clear, um, and COVID showed us this as well, um, that it's something that we, we really need to be investing in, um, seri very seriously and very meaningfully. Um, and just one, we're, my family is just one of uh, too many to enumerate of Michigan families and households um, that face, if not the specific health crisis that we faced, but similar or adjacent health crises. And we need to make sure that folks are able to be made whole while they're going through it. 15. She's 15, right? 13. Okay. And, and because, I mean, you were able to, um, uh, to be able to take some time off of work to be there for, but there's a lot of people who aren't in that position. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And you shouldn't have to choose between caring for the health of a family member or oneself um, and one's job or, um, you know, being able to put food on the table or pay your mortgage and your, or your rent. Um, it's enough of a, it's enough of a stressor um, to be caring for someone who's in a critically ill and very vulnerable position um, to not have that also now become a factor in, in managing the crisis. And you were trying to run a campaign last year too, in a district that was largely unknown to you. How did you go about doing this? It takes a village, not just to raise children, but to exist with each other. Um, and an amazing team of people and support um, behind um, uh, behind me, and um, you know, helping just and just being supportive in in so many different ways. So, and I am so grateful, <laughs> so grateful. Uh, words uh, are insufficient. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story here with us on the MERS Monday podcast. The new chair of the Legislative Black Caucus, State Senator Erica Geis, a Democrat out of Taylor. Appreciate you being on the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks, Kyle.
Join us here in MERS World Headquarters is Scott Greenlee. He is a candidate for the Michigan Republican Party chair position. And Scott, about, uh, what, six months ago, you probably didn't think you were going to be here, did you? No, it was a little bit of a surprise. Um, on uh, filing day, which is actually a week ago today, um, leading up to that, I'd been getting a lot of pressure to run and took a look at the field and thought that my experience, my background, my uh, network that I have uh, would be well suited to do the job. Of course, I've thought about running uh, in previous years and, and never have jumped in, but uh, got some strong encouragement, so decided to raise my hand and offer myself up to the delegates to uh, to see if they were looking for a candidate with the background I bring. So uh, before we kind of get into the race, explain what this is like and what the experience has been like so far. It's really only been a week, but it sounds like you've been on the move. Well, I have. When you run for this type of position, it's, first of all, a very short campaign cycle. The election is February 18 here in Lansing. So uh, you need to get to all the entire state, every corner of it, and meet with as many delegates as possible to present your candidacy, your plans, your vision for the party. So I filed on Friday. Uh, Sunday, I was in Traverse City. Monday, Novi. Tuesday, Muskegon. Wednesday, Grand Rapids and then Lake Orion. Uh, Thursday, I was down in Kalamazoo. And uh, here with you here today. I go to Midland tomorrow, and then I'm in the UP for a couple days. And uh, it's going to be pretty much every day being out meeting delegates. Uh, the delegates make the decision. There'll be about uh, 2,100 delegates seated. Those will be decided at the January 26 county conventions. And, of course, another 2,000 alternates, uh, some of whom will get elevated. So it's a very different kind of race. And uh, just to be clear, um, we are recording on Friday, just so our listeners aren't confused here, even though the podcast always comes out on Monday. Uh, why did you get into this race? So you mentioned that you looked at the field, you weren't very satisfied with it. Um, but when people were encouraging you, what were they telling you? Well, first of all, this is something I've thought about doing for a number of years. Uh, I've been involved in the Republican Party for 35 years. I started, you know, as a college Republican at Grand Rapids Junior College back before it was community college mm -hmm. in 1988. So, uh, you know, by 2009 and 10, I served as a vice chair of the Michigan Republican Party handling coalitions and considered running uh, the year after that, wound up doing some other things and staying busy with business and, and other opportunities. So the thought of running is nothing new. Uh, this particular cycle, uh, I just had a lot of people, a lot of the grassroots delegates come to me and suggest that uh, I brought a couple things to the table. First of all, I'm a proven fundraiser. I've raised millions of dollars for political parties, ballot committees, candidates, uh, over the last uh, 35 years. Uh, so, so I have good contacts with the donor community. I believe we have the confidence of most of them and uh, certainly will present uh, a plan of action uh, and transparency that I think they'll be able to get behind and invest in our organization. Secondly, I've got contacts in every part of the party, um, elected officials, donors, grassroots, party officials at the local level, um, I've, I've got a pretty good network because I've been around and I try and, and work together and collaborate whenever I can. Uh, and then finally, of course, uh, 23 and 24 is such an important cycle for our party. Uh, and, and that was heightened uh, as I was making my decision uh, last Wednesday with the announcement that Debbie Stab and I would not seek uh, another term in the Senate. You know, in, in my involvement, which is a long time, we've only had an open U.S. Senate seat three previous times. 
So the fact that we have a, uh, a presidential cycle where Michigan's delegates need to be delivered to whoever wins our primary, an open U.S. Senate seat, I think it's absolutely critical we take the state house back, and, and that's a very close uh, number. So I think we can do that. I think there's a good plan there, and I think Leader Hall and his team have, uh, are going to do a great job and, and make a case to the people. I think we can increase our congressional delegation and, and obviously uh, also take a look at uh, rule of law judges, uh, local leaders, uh, library boards, school boards, all those things that people are, are suddenly getting a lot more passionate and excited about. Scott, some, would, some people would say that you are establishment. <laughs> some people would say uh, I'm establishment. Some people would say I'm grassroots. Some people would say I'm a donor. Some people would say I'm a volunteer. Some people would say I'm a strategist. Some people would say I'm a patriot. Some people would say, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And, and, and really, I'm frustrated uh, with the state of the party and all this labeling. Um, at the end of the day, uh, what I am is I'm an American and I'm a Republican. And I'm a Republican in Michigan recognizing that while we have a lot of different viewpoints and, and levels of experience and uh, interest in, in various issues in the party, we all absolutely need to work together in some kind of a united fashion the day after the August 24 primary to make sure that uh, uh, we're, we're competitive. And, and that spans across every part of the party. We don't have any... Uh, any inches to give. We can't uh, be a party that excludes people. We've got to be a party that includes people, all Republicans and, and anyone who says they're a Republican, certainly uh, independents, and uh, we'd, we'd welcome Democrats voting for our candidates as well. How legitimately concerned are you if certain members who are running for this position end up getting elected? You know, Kyle, I'm not going to get into too much on, on the field. It's a, it's a large field. I don't think we've ever had 11 candidates for state party chair, uh, certainly not in the time that I've been involved. And uh, uh, everybody brings different passions, different ideas, different backgrounds, different strengths. Um, uh, so, so I think it's, it's a very interesting field. Uh, I, I know pretty much all of them. Uh, I've worked with a number of them. And uh, I just believe that my background my mindset, and uh, my experience and network will uh, best serve the party. So you're not going to go as far as to say that if certain people get elected to this position, it would likely mean the crippling of the Michigan Republican Party. I'm not here to really uh, uh, project uh, anybody's success or, or failure uh, other than, than my own. I project success. I project that if I'm elected, uh, I will be able to work with all parts of the party. I will be able to raise the uh, amount of money needed to make sure that we do the blocking and tackling, to make sure that we run uh, good election integrity programs, good uh, uh, to make sure our vote is secure in 24 and people are confident in it, uh, good absentee ballot programs, uh, good get out the vote turnout, and uh, recruit the necessary volunteers uh, to do that. You mentioned all these events that you've been at. Talk about the enthusiasm you've seen at these events. Kyle, it's crazy. I mean, uh, you know, we've had hundreds of people literally at a couple of these events, and I've only been in for uh, uh, in the race for seven days as of as of when we're recording this. So, uh, I would say that the, the the turnout is is multifold. You know, as far as why, again, when you have eleven candidates running, there's just so much interest versus having two or three or four people run. So, so different people uh, motivate. Uh, delegates and alternates and activists to, uh, to come out because they know them, they've worked with them, etc. I think also uh, we took it on the chin in 22. Uh, you know, the Democrats had a very successful year here in Michigan, 
And uh, because of that, when that happens, and, and I've been around, so I've seen the Democrats successful in Michigan before, it motivates uh, people who maybe weren't as active or weren't involved to, uh, to stand up and say, hey, enough is enough. We've, we've got to get involved. We should have done more. I've had so many uh, people uh, from every part of the party say that they should have done more in uh, the 21-22 cycle. And uh, I've agreed with all of them. We could always all do more. The results were not what we're looking for. And so I think that has caused a lot of people to get out as well and, and get more involved. And the fact that I mentioned earlier, you know, library board, school board races, it seems like there's just a lot more focus on who's representing us at every level of government. And uh, that naturally is going to get more people involved. So, In talking about your background, tell me what you consider maybe your biggest wins as far as helping a candidate or a cause during an election cycle. You know, I've been uh, involved in over 100 winning campaigns. 100? Yep. Uh, I've been involved in over 100 as a, uh, since 1988. Well, now that's news to me. Wow. Yep. That's yep. amazing. Yep. As a volunteer, as a donor, as an activist, I've held about every type of role you can hold in a campaign, uh, um, you know, from a volunteer standpoint. And then as I got older and more experienced from a strategist standpoint, uh, you know, and consulting. So... Uh, I, I would probably say the obvious one is the 2020 election of Lisa McLean uh, for Congress. She was uh, a pretty big underdog when we got into that race. The name ID was low. Uh, but when people met her, and, and I give her the credit, you know, she was an outstanding candidate. She worked extremely hard. Uh, we made the right calls as a team and uh, had a very good uh, primary night and a very good general election night. And you see the type of leader that she is because she is now uh, – uh, already after her first term uh, in leadership within the caucus in uh, Washington. So uh, it was great to uh, align with somebody who's now a close, uh, a close friend uh, who is just an outstanding candidate and just an endless work ethic and an amount of energy. Do you see her running for the U.S. Senate? I think she's thinking about it. Uh, I know people have called her and have been encouraging uh, of her looking at it. Um, so, so I think there'll be more to come on that. She would bring a lot of positives to the table. Well, Lisa's, uh, I think, exactly uh, right for, for Michigan and, and really for America. You know, she's somebody who has uh, uh, worked extremely hard uh, in a startup-type fashion, uh, helping build one of Michigan's largest companies, employing thousands of people, signing the fronts of checks in addition to the backs. Uh, she's a great mom, great family woman and uh, decided that public service was, was a calling and has jumped in and started to make uh, a difference right away, getting bills passed her first term while in the minority and now uh, being thrust into leadership uh, because of the confidence of her colleagues and uh, being in the majority her second term. So uh, I think she's got uh, a lot on the ball and, and a lot of options in the future. One of the things that we've talked about is the, co uh, the correlation between running for the U.S. Senate and then the Republicans in Washington, D.C., helping that campaign, and then the coordination with the Michigan Republican Party. How important is that piece, the Michigan Republican Party, in running a successful U.S. Senate candidate? It's, it's absolutely critical. We have got to be all aligned. And uh, in this year where we've got that open seat and we've also got a presidential campaign, uh, the coordination uh, that can be done legally with the Republican National Committee, uh, with the uh, Senate, uh, organizations in uh, in Washington uh, is important and I'm fortunate again to have been around and, and have some relationships uh, in DC 
that I want to put to work for uh, our delegates, for our candidates, and, and for the betterment of Michigan. What's your position on endorsements in the primaries as a Michigan Republican Party chair? You know, I've gotten a whole bunch of people offer them, and uh, I haven't really, really put any of them out there. Um, I, I think that endorsements are, are uh, a challenge these days, uh, especially in an 11-candidate field. Uh, I'd, I'd just rather make sure that when people vote, they, uh, they give me their endorsement by their, uh, their vote at the convention. So I'm not going to probably publish a big list of endorsements. Uh, I could, but I don't know that that's, uh, that's something that makes sense in this day and age. I'll, I'll probably have a couple special ones, though, so stay tuned for those. Oh, actually, thank you for answering that. Answering the question that way, I was actually referring to, as a state party chair, what's your position on state party chairs or people in positions within the party chairs making endorsements in primary races? Okay, that's that's a great question. Sorry, I misunderstood it. Um, state party is going to stay out of primaries. Uh, our, our job as a Michigan Republican Party is to let the voters decide uh, who wins primaries and then to come in after the primary and, and be prepared on day one, uh, again, right after that August primary and for our presidential candidate before that, when, when that person is selected, uh, and, and make sure we put all of our money, all of our volunteers, all of our organization toward that roughly 90-day sprint. Uh, state party doesn't belong in, in, in primaries. It's up to the people. It's up to the activists to support the candidates that they like. And as state party chairman, uh, you won't see me involved in uh, primaries, and you won't see anyone that works with the team involved in primaries. Have you uh, been in contact with John Yob at all? John's a great friend. I, uh, I called him and let him know that I was running, and uh, he, he told me good luck. You know, his dad got me involved in politics 35 years ago. He was the guy who recruited me to get started, and, uh, and Chuck's uh, a great friend and a great supporter. Uh, so, yeah, I, I let John know. I, I, that first day I made uh, probably 50 phone calls, and uh, he was on the list. He uh, he wished me well, and, and that's been about that. I, I was curious if you know if he's going to get involved in any way. He seems to have a magic touch when it comes to conventions. He does, um, and, and to my knowledge, he's not supporting any of the candidates. Uh, um, I think that he would give me a heads up uh, if he was going to jump in with anybody, and uh, – uh, so we'll just see how things play out. Um, what do you see as being the big factor in this race so far? Uh, from the outside, people are talking about this split within the Republican Party between the donor and the grassroots class. Uh, do you see it that way? Is that being the biggest challenge? I do think that's a big challenge. Um, I, I think that there are uh, communication issues that have gone on. Uh, there are at least perceived respect issues that have gone on. And again, Kyle, this is why I jumped in and why I think I'm an ideal candidate. I've got uh, contacts in every part of this party, uh, donors, grassroots, elected officials, every one of those names we rattled through before, and I'll put them all to work. And I'm going to try and put together an advisory committee to meet with them regularly that will be made up of folks from every part of the party so that we can all listen, we can all understand goals and passions and ideas and uh, get on the same page. So again, once that August primary rolls over. We are full steam ahead toward victory in November. Do you know if the DeVos family is going to get involved in this? I don't. I haven't talked to uh, to any of them. Uh, I did. Uh, I did give a heads up uh, via text that I was running, and uh, uh, that was it. So I, I don't know if they're going to get involved. They haven't been involved in many convention races lately. So have you thought about what you're going to do yet for co-chair? 
That's a question I'm getting an awful lot. Uh, I did not file a co-chair when I filed my candidacy. Most candidates do. Um, and the co-chair, of course, is an immensely important role to the party. Uh, I decided, as I thought about running, and, and I've thought about this in previous years when I've considered running, that that's an important enough position one person really shouldn't make that decision, uh, even the candidate for chair. So per rule, since I did not name a co-chair by 5 o'clock uh, uh, on Friday of last week, uh, you know, we're in a situation where the state committee will elect a co-chair. When I'm elected, that position will be considered a vacancy immediately, and we'll get everybody's input. And I think that that does a couple things. It allows uh, the grassroots to have a stronger stay through uh, the state committee that they elect. It also opens up a number of candidates. You know, uh, we've got a huge field running, and who's to say that one of my opponents wouldn't make a great co-chair? Who's to say that one of the people they've selected to be co-chair wouldn't make uh, the best co-chair? So by not naming anybody, uh, it allows flexibility so that everybody can be considered and by not having one individual make uh, the pick, but instead turning it over to our state committee, uh, I really believe the organization will be served best long term. That's probably an indication of how I will serve as, as chairman. I like to get a lot of uh, uh, different input. I like to consider every possible uh, option. And I like to let uh, all the people uh, have a say on uh, important things, and, and you'll see more of that from me. That seems a little dangerous, though, Scott. I mean, you, they could pick somebody you don't get along with or who you don't work well with. Uh, I think that if they uh, selected somebody that uh, I didn't work with well, we'd, we'd figure out how to work uh, together, you know. I think that there's value in picking people that come from different parts of the party and maybe have different uh, views on things or different backgrounds. Uh, certainly in uh, my years of, of working in politics and working in other organizations, uh, I've had to collaborate with people that I wouldn't necessarily go out and have a beer with on a Friday night and, and watch a football game, and uh, that's okay. A lot of times it actually turns out better. Obviously the big names in this race include Matt DiPerno, Christina Caramo. They had run prior statewide. Is there any concern that the delegates may not appreciate what the role of this post is and maybe go for the flashy name and the person who gives the best stump speech. It is it is a concern. And uh, one of the things I've tried to do in the uh, stops that I've made, and, and I'll do this in, in other ways as well and, and at future presentations, uh, is explain the job of the, the state party chairman. Um, you, you know, there's a lot of passion out there. There's a lot of people that uh, want uh, or perceive that the state party should do things like holding legislators accountable. Uh, well, I'm not sure how we would do that. Uh, I explained to them that I can go over and I can meet with people at the Capitol or invite them over to the Michigan Republican Party and, and talk to them about issues. But at the end of the day, they report to their constituents. As chairman, I report to the delegates. It would be my responsibility uh, to really do three things. Unite the party, raise the necessary funds, and then utilize those funds in a strategic manner to win elections. One of the things I like about politics, and I, I liked right when I got involved, is it's almost like a sport. I mean, there's strategy, there's a time clock, there's a very definite result, and uh, um, we're motivated to make sure that when that time clock runs out in November of 2024, we have an awful lot of wins for the red team on the board. Um, as far as raising funds, you mentioned raising funds. How much do you think the state party needs to raise for this 24 cycle? I think the number is $30 million at least. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we could utilize more, certainly. But when you take a look at uh, media cost, when you take a look at 
a lot of the grassroots organization, the uh, support of our local uh, county parties, um, you know, a, a statewide absentee ballot program, which I'm, I'm very uh, committed to, to doing and funding and doing right. Uh, it gets really, uh, really expensive. So I've heard some of the candidates talk about there's, there's too much money in politics and they're not going to focus on fundraising if they're elected. I've heard other candidates talk about raising uh, lower amounts of money. Uh, but I think 30 is the right number, and uh, we'll see how close we can get to that and how far over it we can get. And last question I want to ask you. We mentioned Lisa McLean earlier for uh, U.S. Senate. Uh, who else do you think would make a good candidate who could beat Democrats in 24 on the Republican side? I mean, I think there's a lot of people. Uh, we, we just need to read your uh, your first initial article, and, and the list of them is right there, other than Candace Miller, who I think yeah. has said, She's not running, and of course, Candace would be an outstanding candidate. But you know, John James, Ruth Johnson, Bill Heisinger, um, you know, Perry Johnson. Uh, th- there are a lot of really good people out there that would uh, support our platform and and be a strong voice for Michigan in the U.S. Senate. And frankly, there may be people that uh, haven't even raised their hand yet, or or we don't know about. We we have a long time to go on. In this instant gratification society we now live in, which drives me up the wall from time to time, everybody wants to know everything right away. And we're probably not going to have a good handle on what that field looks like until at least September of uh, next year at the Mackinac Conference. And uh, potentially folks will get in even after that, as we saw in the gubernatorial race in this last year. Scott Greenlee, he is a candidate for the Michigan Republican Party chair. Appreciate you coming over to MERS World Headquarters and uh, um, being our first interview in our revamped podcast studio. I got to tell you, I like the office, man. It, uh, it looks good. You've dressed it up, Kyle. You're doing a great job. It's always a pleasure to be here. Hey, all the credit goes to the boss, John Rink, on that one. Thank you, though. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Oakmas. Appreciate our guests earlier, Senator Erica Geis and Scott Greenlee, candidate for the Michigan Republican Party chair position. For the boss, John Rorink and Andrew Miniger. Until next week, I'm Kyle Malin. Take care. Everything in the world, but the only growth spirit book.